Our second reading is from the book of Exodus, chapter 7. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. The word of the Lord. So I'm hoping many of you have been doing what I've been doing this summer, which is reading through the book of Exodus and using the devotional that we passed out the past couple of weeks in order to spend time seeking God, hearing from God, discerning your calling, discerning our calling as a church, and trying to understand what God might want to say to you today. When I've talked to others who have been in the process of trying to do this, we've gotten a lot of great uh, people responding through the listen at ChristChurchVienna.com email, but I've also talked to a few people very mature in their faith who have said, I, I get to the point after I read scripture and I sit there and I try, to, I try to be silent and listen to God, and I'm getting nothing, and I'm getting frustrated. Somebody else said, I just can't quiet my mind. You know, I've, I've got everything I need to do. I can read the scriptures, but to be quiet is so hard. I've found myself repeating this prayer when I try to take three or four minutes, five, ten minutes during the morning to just be quiet. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. That's my prayer over and over again. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And some days, some days as I pray that prayer, um, I'm reminded of some of the scripture I just read, something out of the Psalms or something out of Exodus. Other times, occasionally, um, an encouraging phrase comes into my mind or a, a name of a person that I should be praying for. But very often, what I get as well is simply quiet. It's also silence. And you know what? That's a good thing, too. In the midst of that silence, just resting in the Lord. Well, why are we doing this? Why are we going through this exercise, those of you who've been doing it with me the past three or four weeks? It's because we are trying to discern who God is calling us to be, who God is calling you to be and us as a church. And that's why Exodus is such a good companion passage or, or, or story and narrative, because it is the journey of God's people. It's really the journey of God's people becoming God's people. The Jewish nation looks back on the Exodus narrative as their forming point, their declaration of independence, their 4th of July. It was when God acted to save them and make them a nation. Remembering back to three weeks ago when we started, basically Exodus 1 and 2 begins with the people of Israel enslaved. 
They'd been given these promises to their forefather Abraham that I will make you a great nation. I will give you a land. But for 400 years, none of that had happened. And for generations, they had been enslaved in Egypt. And God was absent, silent, at least as far as they knew. But then, with that burning bush, God arrives. What's he going to do, we wonder? And the next couple of chapters unfold with what Dean Miller talked about last week, a a period of disorientation. We go from orientation, they know who they are, well, they're slaves, to disorientation. All of a sudden, Moses is being called to do something he doesn't want to do. All of a sudden, judgments and plagues are falling on the entire land. And then towards the end, what we'll get to next week is they have to pack up and leave the place they have lived for generations. They're completely disoriented. But it's all because God has a plan to reorient them into, reorient them towards himself to become the people that he is forming. God wants them to be his people, his unique people. He's calling them. And that's what we're doing this summer, seeking God to say, what are you calling me to? God had a plan for Israel. He wanted them to be his people. It's why he says in chapter 7, verse 16, through Moses, or is going to use Moses to say it to Pharaoh, let my people go that they may serve me. This is again and again the refrain of Moses. Let my people go. The Lord God says, let my people go that they may serve me. And it's, a, it's not by accident that God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh this phrase, serve. Serve me in the wilderness. Let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. That word serve is a Hebrew word that is the same one that's used for worship. Worshiping God. And at some point, halfway through all the plagues, Pharaoh doesn't want to listen. Like all these plagues are coming, Pharaoh doesn't want to let the people of Israel go. He, he does not want to let these slaves go out and serve and worship God. But what he does is he halfway relents. At some point he says, okay, Moses, you and the people may go and offer sacrifices to your God. He doesn't say serve. Pharaoh knows what he's doing. To go and offer sacrifices is to go and have a church service and then come back. You know, maybe you'll need a day. Go offer your sacrifices to this God of yours and then come back and tell these plagues to stop. But Moses, by God's hand and God's word, speaks the truth. He says, no, let my people go that they may serve, worship. And behind that word and behind the idea is that you give your entire self to God. You live for and work for God. Worship, then, is not an event on Sunday morning. It is an all-life direction. It is what you are living for. Let my people go that they may live for me. You will worship and serve something. I've quoted this a number of times, but David Foster Wallace was one of the great uh, novelists of the past decades in America. He also dealt with depression, did not believe in God, and ultimately committed suicide. But he said this, 
at the commencement address at the college where he was a professor. Here's something that's weird but true. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there's actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. Let my people go that they may serve and worship me. And Pharaoh says no, because he knows the implications of the people going to serve Yahweh. It means they are no longer serving him. You cannot serve Yahweh and Pharaoh. You cannot serve God and And so God brings his plagues upon the people of Egypt. And you know this from the various versions out there in the films, the plagues come. But before we get the plagues, we get the, the reason why these plagues are coming. God speaks to Moses. He says, go, go and tell Pharaoh that I'm coming to bring judgment. Here's the idea. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. This is from Exodus 7. We didn't read this, the first couple of verses. I will harden Pharaoh's heart and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So, God is not just going to deliver his people. He's going to deliver them as he brings judgment on the people of Egypt. The plagues come, and there's a list of them. We just read the first one today, the Nile being turned into blood, and then there's frogs and gnats or lice or some other kind of biting insect, then flies, then the livestock all die from some sort of a disease, then boils on people, and then this locust descends, and then hail that breaks and kills everything that's out and not covered, and then darkness for days until the final plague, the death of the firstborn sons on the night of Passover. These plagues have a purpose. The first is judgment, and the second is revelation. God is bringing his judgment on the gods of Egypt and on Egypt for enslaving his people. But he's also revealing himself as the true Lord of glory, the true Lord of all creation. It is interesting how many commentators note that the judgments that happen through these plagues are actually an overthrowing of the powers of the whole um, environmental pantheon of Egypt. Egypt had a whole set of gods that weren't just built around myth like the Greeks or the Romans. They were built around parts of the environment. So there was Ra, the sun god. That was the main god. They had Set, a god of the storms of the desert. Osiris was a god of death, also tied to the Nile. Hopi was the god of the Nile. They worshipped these things as a part of the creation that, that was where the gods were and were embodied in the sun or the Nile or the storms that were coming. So when the Lord God brings the plagues upon Egypt and the Nile 
the life source of Egypt, the very thing they depended on and, and they worshiped, when the Nile turns to blood, it is humiliation. It is the humiliation of the Nile, of Hopi, the god of the Nile. It disarms that god, and it causes Egypt to bow to Yahweh, not to this other god anymore. Later on, when, when God brings hail, it destroys everything, and their god, Set, can't stop it. And when darkness comes for days, Ra, the sun god, is powerless to bring back the sun. And ultimately, when death falls on Egypt, it is by the hand of Yahweh, not by the hand of Osiris. Life and death are in God's hands, not Pharaoh's, not the Egyptian gods. And through all of this, the Lord God, the God of the Bible, is revealing himself as the true Lord of all creation. He is firmly in control of the environment, the nation, the pantheon of gods. He is the Lord of creation, and he intends for Egypt to know he wants to be their Lord too. You know, when Jesus does miracles, he's doing the same sort of thing. It's not judgment in Revelation. It is salvation in Revelation. But it's also revelation. Jesus doesn't just do miracles for fun. Like, hey guys, watch this. This will be really cool. Right? In, in Matthew 8 that we had read, the storm is about to overwhelm the boat that he's in with the disciples. And he calms the storm. And the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the waves obey? And then when he goes to the other side of the sea in the uh, other part of Matthew 8, he gets there and there's this demon-possessed Gentile. Jesus casts out the demon. The people from the town come out and say, who is this that even the spiritual realm follows him? Get away from us. Jesus does these miracles to reveal that he is the Lord of creation. In Mark chapter 2, Jesus is in a house teaching and some friends bring this paralyzed guy to have Jesus heal him. They can't get in, so they dig a hole through the roof and they drop the paralytic down. And Jesus, in front of all the people and the religious leaders, says, your sins are forgiven. And of course, you know, the, the paralyzed guy's friends are like, and his body, the body, not just the sin, you know, what could he have done? He's paralyzed, right? Like, how much sin can you do? But the religious leaders are saying, you don't have the authority to forgive sins. Only God has authority to forgive sins. So Jesus, knowing their hearts, says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, I say to you, rise, get up. And the man took up his mat and went home healed. Jesus does this miracle, not for like fun, not to show off, but to reveal, I am the Lord of creation. But Pharaoh's heart is hard. There's a refrain throughout this whole narrative, this plague narrative of hard-heartedness. Again and again, we get that Pharaoh hardens his own heart, the Lord hardens Pharaoh's heart, or sort of passively, Pharaoh's heart was or is hardened. Pharaoh thinks he is Lord. He's actually considered a demigod, the emissary of the gods. 
He's their chosen representative on earth. Everyone bows to him. He is the king of the greatest empire in the history of humanity as far as he knew. And everything he said came true. He is the Lord of creation. And so his heart is hard. He's unwilling to acknowledge that there might be another Lord around. And that's essentially what hard-hearted means. An unwillingness to acknowledge, a stubbornness, rejecting or ignoring other voices. In the book of Isaiah, the same word for hard is used of our ears, that the people are hard of hearing. Literally, they won't hear the prophecy, the word of God. They're closing their ears off to what God wants to say to them. It is interesting that there's a double play going on here because of the role the heart had in Egyptian theology. Much like many of us think today, uh, the more complex uh, theology of the Egyptians involved the heart being a person's basic essence by which the gods judged a person after their death. It's where guilt and innocence and motives are found according to the Egyptian way of thinking. And the gods would have weighed in on your heart at your death to determine your destiny. Pharaoh was a demigod. He was their chosen emissary. If you ask the average Egyptian, they would have said, well, the Pharaoh, being the representative of the gods, clearly has a pure heart, a heart of the Lord, uh, uh, the heart of our gods, I mean, and, and he will go into eternity. But time and again throughout this passage, in these passages, we are getting that Pharaoh's heart is not pure. It is hard and stubborn and turned away. And Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, is seen as the true judge of Pharaoh's heart. And Pharaoh is found wanting because he has hardened his heart against the true God. The word that's used there, hard, in the Hebrew is used in, it's two different words, actually. One is kabed, and the other is hazak. There's a third word that's used only once. The most common word is the second one, stubborn. It's actually the words tough or strong. So it's this Hebrew word that basically means hard, strong. And most often throughout the book of Exodus, that's the term that's associated with the heart. But seven times this other word, kaved, is used. Full, heavy, meaning self-sufficient, like kind of a, like I ate too much sort of heart. And I was trying to figure out, what does it actually mean to be hard-hearted? Okay, so we could throw that around, like hard-hearted. Oh, the Pharaoh was hard-hearted. He hardened his heart. But what does that actually mean? And I was wrestling with trying to figure out, how do we grasp what's actually being said here? What does this look like for us? And when I looked at the actual Hebrew word, what was interesting is Hebrew finds its meaning in the, um, in the K, the B, and the D, not the vowels. The vowels are kind of added on years later to understand it. And there's another word that's like this kavod word. It's kavod. It's the one that's used for glory, the glory of God. God alone is glorious. We bow before God. We live for God's glory. Kavod means immovable mover. It does actually mean weighty, lasting, significant. So in some ways, what's being said here, making the connection, to be hard-hearted is to have a glory heart. That is, you are unresponsive to the true glory of God 
because you're too concerned with your own. To the extent that your greatness, your control, your credit, your power, your being recognized matters, your heart will be hardened to the one that should truly get credit, be recognized, have control and power. We see the definition of hard-hearted played out in some of the other verses tied around how people respond to God. In chapter 9, verse 17, the Lord says to Pharaoh, you are still exalting yourself against my people. And in 10.3, you refuse to humble yourself before me. A hard heart is one that exalts and doesn't humble. And then in chapter 9, when we get the, the hail that comes, there's a warning that comes. This hail is going to come and kill all of your servants and all of your livestock unless you get them inside. These are going to be giant hailstones. And according to the scriptures, it says, some of the people of Egypt feared Yahweh, meaning they believed what God had to say, and they took their servants, their slaves, and their livestock and put them inside. But many of the people of Egypt paid no attention to what God had to say in his warnings, and their livestock and their servants were killed out in the fields. A hard heart fears God and pays attention. It's much the same as what Jesus does when he's talking to the Pharisees about their hard-heartedness, their unwillingness to respond to him. In Mark chapter three, we get one of these stories that's not uncommon where Jesus enters a synagogue. It says there was a man there with a withered hand and they, the religious leaders, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal the man on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man with the withered hand, come here. Jesus then said to them, the religious leaders, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to harm, to save life or to kill? But they, the religious leaders, were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hands. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Their hardness of heart was unwilling to see God's revelation in the person of Jesus. They needed to remain in control of the narrative, in control of how to define things, and they wanted God on their own terms. When he showed up in the flesh and was revealing himself by healing, by bringing life, they refused to hear it. How might we be hard-hearted? basically unbelief, honestly. Like, we all have some elements of doubt, but unbelief in general is a hard-heartedness. I've heard people here and elsewhere say, look, if God actually spoke to me like he spoke to Moses, if I actually saw the miracles that Jesus did in front of me, then I'd believe. But Pharaoh shows you you won't believe. Well, you might not believe. Maybe you would. But I, I'm guessing many of us, just by our natural modern doubts and quite frankly, kind of hard-heartedness, don't take that the wrong way, are like this. If we were walking in Vienna today and saw a guy get run over by a car and killed, like right in front of us, and then some Christians ran out and prayed for him, 
and he was raised from the dead and was alive and the bleeding stopped and they're like, he's alive. You would probably say, boy, that guy was lucky. I guess he wasn't really dead, right? I probably just missaw it. He probably was just knocked unconscious. You would go through a whole list of things proving that could not have actually happened. God could raise somebody from the dead in front of you and you would find every reason not to believe it. I'm not just saying you, I would too. I'd be like, praise God, did that really happen? That didn't happen. That was for back in the Bible times. Our challenge with our own heartedness, hard-heartedness, is that our starting point, our basic starting point, with anything is that I'm okay and I must be in the right. It takes a major failure in our life or a major season of failure to think otherwise. And that's why I actually don't fault Pharaoh that much, right? The guy had been raised as the greatest gift to humanity. His whole life, everyone had bowed to him. He'd been told he was a demigod from birth. He's the most powerful man in the most powerful nation in the world. He, can't, he doesn't really know what's going on beyond his borders. His borders extend beyond everything. And whatever he says comes true. He needed a couple of failures to possibly be open. It took me, through the course of my teenage and early adult life, failing in sports, getting slowed in my ministry progress when I felt called into this whole Christian ministry thing, a, a denomination that blew up in order for me to fully give up my pursuit of my own glory and exchange it for pursuing God's glory. I didn't want to be a pastor. I did not want to go back to the Anglican church of my youth, and I did not want to come back to Vienna, except for a chili dog every so often. But this is where God has made me to be. I am doing what I am called to do. And somehow I knew it all along, but was fighting it for a while. It took a series of fails and delays for me to be open to what God really wanted to do. We, we want God to speak on our terms, like kind of in the way that we want. And we want him to affirm what we're already doing. Many of us are afraid that if we actually seek God, really seek him, he will call us to be or do what we dread or fear most. But God doesn't work that way. He doesn't. He called Moses to be a deliverer. And as we saw in Exodus 1 and 2, Moses was a deliverer. He couldn't not deliver things. He did it when he was in Egypt. He did it when he was at the well uh, meeting the, the, his future wife. He did it when he goes back to Egypt. He is a deliverer. God just called him to be what he was made to be. And to Pharaoh, through Moses, God is calling Pharaoh to be the leader God made him to be to be a God-fearing leader instead of a self-exalting leader. Even as he is calling Pharaoh to let the people go, he's calling him to do what he is made to do, to lead his people and to bless another nation. And he won't do it. But he isn't calling him to something that he isn't made to do. 
we are made in the image of God. We will find our true nature and calling in relation to God. To be our true selves, to live fully into the image that we are created to be, we need to live under and in obedience to the God who made us and calls us, which means we need to be humble-hearted and open-hearted instead of hard-hearted or glory-hearted so that we can live into the identity he has made us to live into. You know, you all, we all have uh, a natural identity, especially as teenagers, adults. As teenagers, you're still sort of forming it. Adulthood, you kind of form your identity. Our natural identity is who you have become through the course of life. Your natural identity is who you have become through the course of life. It's your career, it's the things that you do, it's the things you think you are. This is your natural identity. I'm an introvert or I'm an extrovert, that's who I am. I'm a salesman or a, a good student, a loyal friend, a mom, that's who I am. That's my natural identity. But we tend to think of our identity as what we do or what we're good at. And it may be the case that that's the calling that God has on you. But what you do is not necessarily, even what you do well is not necessarily your identity. We need to actually go back, we talked about this a few weeks ago, to the starting point, which is your gospel identity. Your gospel identity is who you are because of Christ. You are forgiven, a son or daughter of God, an heir of eternity. What God says about you is true about you, more true than what you think or feel or observe about yourself. What God says about you is the true you. That's your gospel identity. But instead, we live constantly wrestling with our false identity, our guilt, our shame, our fear, our sin. You're just a liar. You're a coward. You're an adulterer. You don't measure up. You know why you don't measure up. It's true. You don't measure up. God doesn't need you. That is a lie. That is your false identity. Live in your gospel identity so that you can fulfill your kingdom identity. This is your unique calling in God's kingdom. It probably aligns with your natural identity, like it might be something you're already doing, but you need to have the gospel in there to give it some influx and to point you in the right direction. God made you in a certain way and he wants to use you in the way that he wants, for his glory, not yours, and for others' good. You know what it's like? It's like if we had lived our whole lives made as like one of these instruments over here, a guitar, a violin, like take the violin. The violin needs somebody who knows how to play it, but it's an instrument that if you were a little kid, you might think it's just a boat for your you know, stuffed animals to play on in the tub. That bow that you rub across the thing could very well shoot arrows. If you spend your whole life taking that violin and putting it in the bathtub and shooting arrows with the bow, are you living into the thing God made you to be? You need to know your creator, the one who can bring out the music in your life so that he can make the instrument you are made to be fully alive, fully beautiful. You need to know God and his calling in your life. And it will be for his glory and the good of others. 
This summer, we are in the summer of discernment, and I am asking you to seek God with me this summer. He wants you to know him. He wants you to know him more intimately than you do right now. He wants you to have life to the full in him, and he wants you to become who he has made you to be. So we're gonna spend time learning over the next three weeks. We'll have opportunities for you to learn how to seek God, discern God, hear from God. Sign up for one of those opportunities. There'll be other things we try to do later this summer. And practice. Do it again and again. Spend time with God, seeking God. And if you get, you know, kind of just quiet in your quiet five minutes, that's okay. Do it again tomorrow. Seek God again. Lord, I am your servant. Speak to me. Lord, I am your servant. Speak to me. Wait on the Lord again and again. Being quiet for a little bit is probably not a bad thing in our life. And discern your gospel identity. What does God want to say to you? What does he say about you that you need to reject your false identity? And what is your kingdom identity? How has he uniquely made you? What instrument has he designed you to be? What song does he want to play through your life? God wants to do something in us and through us, through this church in the coming years. I don't think it's just a church service. Let's pray. God, this summer as we seek you, we know that we wrestle like Pharaoh with hardened hearts. We wrestle with unbelief, with fear, with our own shame and guilt. But you are calling us to know you, to know you more deeply, to know ourselves as children of God, and to know ourselves as those who've been called into your kingdom for your purpose in this world. God, speak to us. Let us see you as you are, the God who has revealed yourself in the plagues, but then thankfully, most fully in Jesus Christ. For you are our Lord, and not just the Lord of all creation. In your name we pray, amen.